So we are up to Mark chapter 7. Or as we like to say, the Gospel of Peter chapter 7. Because uh, remember, this is uh, Mark who we think is probably living in, depending on how you date this, he's either in Antioch and Syria or he's in Rome. Depending on it, if you go for an early date or a late date. He's with Peter. So remember the stories that you're hearing, don't hear Mark, hear Peter. Peter's telling these stories. Uh, and remember, Peter, it, Peter is a, uh, a very Jewish, Orthodox Jewish Jew. And so some of the stories come across. Mark, you'll see in today's lesson, Mark actually interprets for the Romans. Uh, and he's writing to the church in Rome, uh, which is primarily a Gentile church, but it has some Jewish members. And so you see, this book is the least Jewish of all the Gospels. Uh, even though it's written by two Jewish guys, it's written, it's written to uh, a primarily a church that is not Jewish. And some of the things that he's talked about the last several weeks uh, get into, if you read Paul and some of the Paul's letters later on, remember Paul's letters are written about the same time as this book. And so that's part of us, you know, we, I fall into the same trap of, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are, are the first part of the, the New Testament. So you go, they're, therefore, they were written first. And then everything else comes after. It's not. They're all written after most of the letters. And so when you see some of the things that they're talking about in the letters, they show up in the Gospels as far as discussion points or explanation points. Uh, and just a reminder, uh, and the other interesting part about this, Peter and Mark are Jewish. They are Eastern in their thought. The Romans patterned themselves after the Greeks. The Greeks are Western. They have very, very different writing styles, and they have very, very different uh, structure to their documents. Uh, and we talked about, you know, Accurate is true, exact is true. Greek, a Greek, and we are descendants of the Greeks. Our educational system, our logic system is Greek. So we're very, you know, we're rule followers, right? Uh, so exact, when we say true, we mean exact. When someone from an Eastern philosophy says true, they mean accurate. Those are not the same thing. You can be true. And so, you'll, if you compare Mark against some of the other Gospels, the timeline is not 100%. It's the same basic timeline, but they move events around depending on their narrative. That does not make them not true. In, in a Jewish sense, that's a very common thing to do because they're, they're, this book is thematic. It's not a travelogue. Uh, and so... Mark is picking, or Peter is picking stories that go with the theme. Uh, and most, the biggest difference is what we call this logical progression uh, versus sandwich model. Uh, you know, a sandwich, you have bread, bread, and meat in the middle, right? That's a very, very Eastern way of writing. The most important thing is in the middle of a story. And when you see a lot of the uh, parables, the most important parts in the middle. 
the book of Mark is not is structured somewhat like this. Uh, we go back to the very first week. There are three acts in Mark. This is a play with three acts. Act one, chapter one through eight, occurs totally in Galilee, and the question is, who is Jesus? Uh, we're coming to the end of this act. This week and next week, we're at the end of Act 1. Act 2, which is really just this little thing in the middle, is in many ways the uh, peak of this book. Because this is, he, Peter is telling the story of what Jesus is doing uh, to all the other people. So you see him interacting with Jews, you see him interacting with Gentiles, you see him doing miracles. And so that everyone says, oh, who is Jesus? Jesus is king. Uh, and then this middle part here is when he's with the apostles, the guys who become his disciples who become the apostles. And so the question he has from them is, who, who do you say I am? And that's the transfiguration a couple stories ago with that. So in a lot of ways, that's the actual single most important section of this book. Because what Mark, Peter through Mark is saying is these men who you have around as witnesses, what they went through all this, what do they say Jesus is? Who, does they, who do they say Jesus is? And so then the Act 3, which is 11 through 16, is how Jesus becomes king. The most important other thing to remember about this book is Jesus is not the Messiah in this book. Messiah is a very, very, very Jewish concept. Romans do not have the concept of Messiah. They Remember, Romans are the emperors of the world. They do not need someone to come and rescue them. They are already in charge of the world. They don't need a Messiah. They don't need the anointed one who's going to come and take us and put us on the top. They're already on the top. What they need is a king. And they understand king. So in many ways, Mark is saying... Jesus is the king. So he's saying that in a very Greco-Roman style of the Jews are looking for Messiah. The Gentiles are looking for a king. As he says, so Mark says Jesus is the king. So this whole book is, who is Jesus? He actually starts at the very first verse. Jesus is the king. And so that's where we're getting. The very end is, this is how Jesus becomes the king. So we're coming at the end of the first act, this week and next week, of in the populace, who, who does Jesus, what's happening, how's he, how's he teaching, what's happening with his teachings? All right, so we jump into uh, verse 7. Uh, the green in here is Mark's interpretation of what Peter is telling him. Because remember, he's not, it's primarily not a Jewish audience, so when Peter says stuff, or tells these stories that occur in the Jewish Israel, or Judah, the, the province of Judah, the guys in Rome may not understand them at all. And so, you know, we've seen the last couple weeks, the Pharisees are coming in and out. Jesus is starting to have lots of conflict with the guys in power because he is not what they're looking for. Or more importantly, they want him to do stuff that he is not here for. Because 
the people that are want the Messiah. They want to be, they're at the bottom of the, of the world as far as socioeconomically. They want to end up at the top. And they want Jesus to take them there. Uh, so the Pharisees and some of the teachers of the law who came from Jerusalem, very important, that the center of the Jewish world is Jerusalem. So he's now getting so famous that guys are willing to leave Jerusalem to come up to Galilee, which is not the center of the world. Uh, and they want to test Jesus. Uh, and they saw some of his disciples eating food with hands which were defiled, that is, unwashed. Now, it's not, it's important to know that the Pharisees, the, his disciples were not not washed, you know, they weren't, like, not bathing. This is ceremonial washing. Uh, which is what Mark tells you. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. This does not come out of, the, out of the, the Old Testament. This comes out of the writings around the Old Testament from their other rabbis. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they have observed many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. They have, you got to keep separate kitchens. You know, your dairy doesn't touch your meat. Uh, like what else? And you, you can't even, you, even after they're washed, you make sure those dishes don't touch. Uh, and so the Pharisees are very focused on the teaching of the elders. Uh, and so they ask him, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Uh, eating their food with defiled hands. You know, of course, they, they use very loaded words. You know, not dirty hands, defiled hands. Uh, and so this is what you can tell Jesus is getting tired of some of the things. Because he comes out and he calls the, the Pharisees the worst thing that he can call them. He calls them a hypocrite. That's not the, it has a different connotation than what we use. Hypocrite and the attainment actor. A hired person who doesn't believe he just says the words. To a Pharisee, that's the worst thing that you could have done. Because Pharisees are all about, we are the true remnant, we are the true believers of God. The Torah means everything to us. We, everything that we do is all about God. And, and he basically says, you're, you're, hired, you're hired actors just verbalizing, just reading the script. You're not, you don't believe it, you don't act like it. He couldn't have said anything worse. And he pulls out Isaiah... These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain, for the teachings are merely human rules. They worshiped. The Mishnah is the writings of the earlier rabbis about the Torah. They worship that as equal to the Torah. And that's what they're saying here, is that it's, it, it, it's the tradition of the elders. And Jesus, I mean, he, this, is just, this is a... As big as a slap in the face as you can, right there. Just a big slap to them. Saying, you guys, you're not only are you actors, you're not even godly. Saying, you're not even godly. Which to Pharisee, yeah, you might as well just shoot. I guess in those days, stab not shoot. Uh, you have let go of the commands of God and holding to human traditions. So, I mean, he is now basically. Uh, in a fight with the heroes of the people. 
the average Jewish person did not like priests. The, San, the, the Sadducees were very rich, very powerful, and they were seen as co-opting with the Roman government. The Pharisees were kind of the men of the people because they were not Sadducees, they were not priests, and they were what you, most kids, when you, when you would say, what do you want to grow up to be? I want to be a Pharisee. Because they were seen as the most religious, the most the truest of the Jews. And Jesus is basically kicking them out and just saying, you guys, are, you guys have totally missed everything. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to deserve your own traditions. Basically saying, you just put man above God. Uh, Moses said, honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses her mother and father is being put to death. But you say that anyone declares what might have been used to help your parents is korban, Hebrew word, and so Mark interprets it for you and is devoted to God. Then you no longer have anything to do for your mother and father. Therefore, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that's handed down. And you do many things like that. What did they do with that money? Was it set aside somewhere, or that was just in their heads? It's in their heads. In your heads. Because I'm a man of God. I need to be able to teach. And so, yes, the most important part of the Torah is you must take care of your family, especially your parents. And so you get to point, well, it's, you know, I could have you live with me, but I need to be able to teach, and I've got to teach my disciples, so my house is Korban. It is devoted to God, because this is a place of study. And so it's a, it's a, it's a way of getting around, it's a way of getting around what they should have been doing, which is taking care of the parents. Uh, and so, yeah. Because that, that's like the main part when you look at first century Judaism is you got to take care of your parents. It, it's very family driven. And so the fact they were, they created, I mean, this was a good thing when they created it. You know, sometimes you've got to, you know, set aside things to do God's work. But they're setting aside everything to do God's work. You know, oh, uh, you know, the equivalent would be today. You know, I really need that Mercedes 550S to drive me to the, the Wayne Reed Center. Yeah, yeah, I know I can use this model, but, you know, I want to be safe. I, you know, I want to make sure that, you know, it always runs. It, it's high quality. And that's a lot of what they were doing. It was, it was not that he said, you don't do, your, don't do your work. It's like they were going above and beyond. And so they were putting everything in there. It's, it's devoted to God. Which, when you get in the Old Testament, is true. It's, you know, because that's the thing. It's all God's. But it wasn't that it's devoted to God. It's devoted to God in the way that I wanted it to be devoted to God. Which, in this case, is driving a Mercedes, you know, the first century equivalent of a Mercedes uh, horse or camel. Uh, you know, they had good, you know, not, a, not just a mule, but probably a horse. Uh, and so he did, so in this this part, as the story comes through, he is now ripping the Pharisees, saying, you guys are not, you're not godly. You're just actors. You might as well, you, forget to be a Jewish, you might as well be Greeks, which is the worst thing you can say to them. 
you might as well just be a green. And Jesus called out to the crowd and said, Listen to me, everyone, understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it's what comes out of the person that defiles them. Because the whole Jewish ceremonial law had to do with cleanliness and make sure that you're not, you know, your, your food is correct and it's kosher. Uh, and after he left the crowd, you know, the, the house, the disciples asked him, I, my favorite is the disciples again, uh, we don't understand this, Jesus. And he comes back and says, are you dull? Uh, don't you see that nothing in this person on the outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and out of the body. And now we have another, because if you, if you look in Corinthians from Paul, written about the same time as this, there's a big issue of can you eat food sacrificed to idols? And Christian, you know, you, you've got this fight between the Jewish part of the, the church and the Christian part of the church, and then subgroups of the Christian part, can you eat idol food or not idol food, etc. And so, Mark makes a little, uh, in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. So he throws a little editorial comment in this. Because, uh, you know, that was a big issue, again, for the church in Rome. If you're a Jewish Christian, do you have to be kosher? If you're a Gentile Christian, do you need to be kosher just so you don't make everyone else upset? And so this is Mark throwing a little editorial comment in here. Do you think it may have been post Peter's vision of the, the sheep being let down with all the Oh, that, well, this is definitely post Peter's vision. Right. Because we're, we're probably 20-some years post Peter's vision. Right. Uh, about So, and then, again, Peter, he's the guy that has the vision, right? Going to, going to Joppa. And, you know, so it's not, not unusual that you think this would be an editorial comment thrown in here. Uh, and basically, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. It's basically your heart. It's not what you eat. And so, again, he's... Uh, in the Jewish world, this was a huge deal. In the Gentile world, not that much. All right, Bible all time. Ding, 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 ding. Extra. Uh, why Tyre and Sidon? Let's see how good you guys pay attention in class when you were like fourth grade. This is a fourth, fifth grade question. Who went to Tyre and Siren in the Old Testament that would be super important to the Jews? Who got? Jonah? Nope. Nope. You're out of here. What? Not Lot. Elijah is the correct answer. Because, remember, who comes in the Jewish world, who is coming back to introduce the Messiah? Elijah. That was the common teaching at the time. So, Jesus, Peter is about to tell the story that's in the other Gospels of Jesus going to Tyre and Sidon. Uh, this is 1 Kings. And so rise and go to Zarephath, go to Sidon, and there, there's the widow. And you remember the story of Elijah going to live with this widow. And the son of the widow, there was no breath left in him. That's a Hebrew way of saying he's dead. And Elijah raises him from the, from the dead. 
And then, now I know that you are a man of God, and the word of God is in your mouth is truth. So that's the background for what's about to happen. Every Jew knows this story, because this is about Elijah. He's not quite David on the pantheon of Jewish heroes, but he's right under him. Uh, they, all the kids know the Elijah stories. All right. So Jesus leaves uh, his hometown, well, his current town, and goes up to Tyre. He entered a house, and he did not anyone else to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. Remember, everywhere he goes, huge crowds are following him. I mean, he's got so many crowds that, you know, we, we know that uh, uh, Herod knows about him because he thinks, oh, it's John the Baptist come back from the dead. And we know the Jews from Jerusalem know about it because they're following, they're sending people up to see him. Uh, and she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by the emperor's spirit and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek. Uh, this is, again, Peter bringing out a little detail that's very important to the church in Rome because he's saying Jesus dealt with the Greeks. It's not, he's not a Jewish guy. He's not a God of just the Jews. And to the Jews, this is unthinkable. Uh, she was born in Syria and Phoenicia. Uh, and more important, well, we'll get to that in a second. There are a lot of, there's multiple levels in this story. And she begged Jesus to drive the demon out. And he says, first, let the children eat all they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. This, this on the surface, sounds like a really, really, really harsh statement. I mean, Jesus went to her house. I mean, it was, you know, he could have stayed with the Jews in, in, in Tyre. Uh, and she said, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he says, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found her child lying in the bed and the demon gone. If you look at Matthew, uh, a lot, there's a lot more in this. All right. Uh, so in Matthew 8, 24, 30, you have exactly the same story. Here are the, here are the five <coughs> levels of conflict in this story. You know, it's a simple, simple story, but there are five levels of conflict in here. First of all, you have Jew versus Greek. Jesus is a Jewish rabbi. He's an observant Jew. She's a Greek. They didn't cross. The, the Greeks conquered the Jews about 200 years before this. The Jews did not like, well, Jews don't like anybody, let's face it. They're pretty much against anybody. Uh, they really did not like the Greeks because they conquered them. Male versus female. He's a man, she's a woman, she's not supposed to talk to him at all. If she wants to talk to him, she should go to one of his uh, disciples and say, may I please talk to the rabbi? That didn't occur. He's a rabbi. Ordinary people didn't talk to rabbis. Uh, this... Uh, I'm trying to. This is like uh, you know Justin Bieber, right? Every person doesn't come up to Justin Bieber on the street, and go, "Hey, bud, how you doing?" Right? You got to get to the security. He's surrounded. You know, it's a, you got to make an appointment to see him. That's kind of how the rabbis were. That's one of the reasons you had disciples. Your disciples were kind of your uh, your buffer. Not only did they learn from you, but they buffered the ordinary people out. So he's a rabbi, and she's ordinary. As I said, the Greeks conquered the Jews. So, slave versus the person who conquered the slave. 
So that's the level we're talking about. And then East versus West. She's Greek. He's Jewish. Two totally different philosophies of how you did stuff. So the, there are five levels of conflict occurring in this story. Uh, and so let's talk about it just a little bit. Uh, so dogs and breadcrumbs. Context is everything in the story. And remember, we're, we're, this story was probably, uh, they probably spoke Greek. So when Peter is remembering this story, it, it takes place in Greek, speaking Greek. Peter speaks, he probably speaks in Greek, probably doesn't write Greek. He writes Aramaic. So this probably was Greek to Aramaic, back to Greek, and then to Latin, then to us. Uh, so you lose a lot of context in a five-way switch in language. Uh, first of all, when Jesus says to them, or he calls her a kelevim. It's an Aramaic word for small dogs. He is not calling her a dog. He's calling her a pet. Really important difference. And here's another Jewish versus Greek thing. To Jews, dogs are unclean because they're scavengers. So Jews did not keep pets. They did not keep dogs. Greeks and Romans kept dogs. They're like us. They have dogs everywhere. They have house dogs. They have yard dogs. Yard dogs are guard dogs. House dogs cleaned up the floor. Now, we've all got dogs in our house, at least the dog people, right? What happens when crumbs hit the ground? Yeah. That's why they had dogs. And, you know, there's no heating and cooling, so when it's cool, where do, you, where do your dogs sleep? They sleep in bed with you. They keep you warm. So the Greeks routinely had dogs in their houses. And to a Jew, that'd be like, uh, that'd be like sleeping with a pig. Dogs and pigs were unclean. They were considered the same level. And so what Jesus is telling her, he's not calling her an unclean, he's calling her a pet. Uh, and so she interprets that and flips that. Uh, and then the bread in this particular saying is God's blessings. And so... This is the story out of Matthew. Uh, a lot because this is Matthew's a very Jewish book. There's a lot more detail in here, uh, and this is actually what she said: "Is Lord, Son of David." Mark tells you that he, she kind of comes up and says, "Hey, cure my daughter." Matthew tells you the deeper story: Lord, Son of David. She recognizes Jesus for being the Messiah in, Jew, in Jewish literature. That is a title of the Messiah right there, son of David. So she actually says to him, you're the Messiah, which is interesting because she's Greek, but she recognizes him for who he is, the Messiah. And he did not answer her. And the disciples came forward and said, hey, send her away because she keeps shouting at us. Now this is probably how it really happened because that's exactly the way a woman would approach a rabbi in the Middle East. She's shouting. She's bothering us. And he says, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the, of the house of Israel. Jesus' role is to go to the Jews primarily. But the fact that he's in Tyre and Sidon tells you that 
he is foreshadowing the fact that it's not going to stay a Jewish religion. Uh, and she bows down for him and says, Lord, help me. It is not take, it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But even the dogs feed from the crumbs which fall from the master's table. What the, the visual picture you need to get here is you have the children eating the children. This is Thanksgiving, right? The children at the children's table. And, you know, because children do not eat with adults in that, in that culture. And so they're feeding them, and the dogs are sitting. And what she is saying here is that the, the dogs, the Greeks, the Gentiles, are going to be sitting at the table with the children. That's the, the visual picture you're going to get here, is that the dogs are soon going to be sitting there with them. And then Jesus comes back and says, in the book of Matthew, twice, only twice, does he say your faith, your faith is great. Neither one is Jewish. One's a centurion, the other is this lady. Your faith is great. Uh, which is... which is a slap in the face to the Jews because they're all about faith. And they're all, you know, we're the, we're the most faithful of the people. So in the entire book of Matthew, which is written to the Jewish Christians and the Jews, only twice does he say great and then neither one is Jewish. And the same thing in the book of Mark. He basically says it's going to be done. So he's, Mark tells you the condensed, like everything else in Mark, it's a condensed version of this story, which Jesus has gone to a Greek woman, he heals her daughter, and he basically says, yes, the, the blessings will come to you, but my first mission is to the Jewish people. And then it's going to come to you. Because remember, by the time Peter tells Mark this story, we're 20 to 30 years after this fact. And, and the church is primarily Gentile by now. And so this is telling the story that yes the Gentiles are in fact real Christians they're not they're not secondary Christians because they're under the Jews he's basically telling the story yes you're really you're real true Christians and so son of David Lord of Messianic title so she uh, she recognizes the fact that the Messianic alright then he you do a map. This is where he's at. This is where he lives. Uh, he's now going down to this area, which is a very mixed Jewish-Gentile area. So, so the symbology that Peter in the stories that he's telling to Mark is that Jesus is going to both people. He's not going because remember we had the, the, the feeding of the five thousand, then we had the feeding of the four thousand. One's to the Jews, one's to the Gentiles. He, you know, he's raised people from the dead. They were Jewish. He, got, he just raised, basically cured a Gentile woman's child. He's now going down into this area of the Decapolis, which is uh, in a different area. This actually belongs to a different Herod. And so he's crossing into this area. This is kind of, this area is more, more desert. Uh, Less agricultural, more uh, as we learned, as you, we saw uh, the miracle where he sends the, uh, the demons into the pigs. They, they they're more uh, what we would call ranching. Uh, 
far, far, farm husbandry is what they do more here than grow things. It's more desert. And so he left it the vicinity and down through the Sea of Galilee into the Decapolis. Uh, and they brought him a man who was deaf and hardly talking. They begged Jesus to place his hand on him because he's Bimmer. Where is he at? He's at a place where he throws the demons out of the guy and a thousand pigs rush in and kill themselves in, into, the, into the ocean. So the people know the story. And every time he's been here, he has huge crowds and he heals everybody. And so he's in the area again. They know Jesus. Once he gets there, people recognize Jesus. Oh, we know this. Uh, and he, he took him aside, uh, and then he looked at heaven and said, Ephala. Epitha. Which means, now, and Mark's going to interpret it for us, right? This is Aramaic, Hebrew, Hebrew Aramaic. I used to use that as my password, and then I couldn't remember how to spell it. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Be open. That's right. Be open. There you go. So now we know if you want to get me, that, that may be, that may be possibly a password. I That's right. There's too many PHs in that. Uh, uh, and so it says, Be open. His ears were open, his tongue was loosened, and began to speak plainly. So another healing. And then this is. This happens every time he heals somebody, he does this. He commanded them not to tell anybody. But the more he did so, the more they kept talking about it. I mean, yeah, because that's the thing. Everywhere he goes, you know, thousands of people around him. You know, he goes and, you know, outside the city, and what, uh, feeding the 5,000, 5,000 men. That's not counting ch women and children. When he feeds the 4,000, that's 4,000 men. That's not counting women and children. He's got thousands of people gathering him. So the more he does, the more people talk about it. They were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well. They said that he even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. Which, this is actually a throwback to uh, Isaiah in the Old Testament that says, what's the Messiah going to do when he comes? He's going to make the deaf hear and the mute speak. So, this is some, to the uh, the Gentiles, the Romans. They don't care about this. To the Jewish Christians, that is what the Messiah is going to do. So we're coming. Like I said, we're coming to the end of this first period where he is incredibly popular. Even the Gentiles are saying, "This is the Messiah. Or this is the King," and they're recognizing for who he is that he is the Son of God. And we're also coming to the area of extreme conflict because the Jews, the Jewish power brokers, refuse to accept that he's the Son of God. The, the common people accept him because we see we have thousands of people following him. And they recognize him for who he is, that only someone from God could do this. Now, I mean, the apostles at the time still think he... It's clear, because remember, this book is written 30 years after the fact. But the apostles clearly do not see him for who he is. They still think he's about to overthrow the Romans. And the Jewish people, even though he's healing people, they really want him to overthrow the Romans. 
And the Pharisees want him to overthrow the Romans, put the Pharisees in charge. The Sadducees want him to overthrow the Romans, put the Sadducees in charge. The Zealots want him to overthrow the Romans, put the Zealots in charge. Uh, so that's my other fourth group. And uh, the uh, Essenes really don't care. They're out. They're out on their own, and they're not. They're not sure what to think about him because we know from writings of the period that they know about him, but they're not sure what he is. All right. Any, so that gets us to the end of chapter seven. So half of chapter eight next week, which is the end of his Galilean ministry, and he's going to start to move south. We know from the other gospels that he actually goes back and forth more than once, but Mark, they said Mark is a condensed version of everything that's happening, and so he is finished in Galilee. He is uh, one of my favorite. Uh, Broadway shows is Jesus Christ Superstar. He is Jesus Christ Superstar right now, right? You know, people are cheering his name. He shows up in the Decapolis, which is not a Jewish area. People recognize him. They bring everyone to him. He goes to Tyre and Sidon, not a Jewish area. People recognize him, and they bring their sick to him. Everywhere he goes, you know, there are crowds. You know, we just talked about it last week. There are crowds around him touching him. We just need to touch his garment, and we're healed. Uh... So he's at the peak of his uh, fame at this point. Uh, the, the power structure, and uh, what Angus was talking about last week, there's a, the, the fight's coming because he is not doing what the power structure wants. He is not uh, picking, they want him to pick sides, you know, pick, be a Pharisee, be a Sadducee, you know. Let's push, let's push our political agenda to the top. He says, I, I'm here bring the good, the good news to everybody. And so what you, what you have here is the, uh, the you know, in writing you see the conflict coming. This is foreshadowing. He's going he's gonna to go from Galilee where he's from, where he's very popular. He's going down to Jerusalem. He's going into the den of the vipers where the power structure lives. So the rest of this book, after a little bit in chapter 8, is him on the way and what happens once he gets there. In a super condensed, very fast version. All right. Are you next week? Or yeah. Next week? You're next week. All right. We'll see you then.